on this edition of Flying High, the Philly fans' perspective. We got a new man at the head of the Flyers, Elaine Vigneault. We're talking all about it. Plus, we have a special guest, a Flyer expert, and possibly a relative to my co-host, Justin. But first, send requests, play us in. You have no idea how high I can fly. Well, 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 we return from a slight hiatus. It's been a busy time in the lives of us flying hires, and it's been a busy life with the Philadelphia Flyers. So tonight, joining myself and Justin is a fan, because we are the fans' perspective, and we want to hear the voice of Philadelphia talking about sports, so in honor of the Flyers' big move to hire a new coach, Justin, who do we have with us tonight? So I thought it would be pretty cool to have uh, – first off, hey, Pete, what's going on? Nice oh, hey, Justin, you. it's been a minute. Yeah, it's been a minute. Uh, I thought it would be – you know, my younger brother and I have been talking about this, having him on for a while, and you know, we're both um, – all of my – all. Of, Myself and my, both of my two brothers are we've been Flyers fans since we were younger. So the Flyers are kind of our number one team, the, the team we kind of die with. You know, we die with all of them, but I think the Flyers hold a special place in our hearts. Um, so, you know, who better to have on than than one of my brothers who is a huge Flyers fan, just like I am. And, you know, we have been following someone who's been following the trends with hockey for the past couple of years, who knows how to talk about hockey, who um, knows how to break it down and can tell you kind of what's going on with the flyers, just kind of like I like to do. So it, it's nice to have Shane on with us tonight. And uh, we're going to break down, uh, you know, this whole Vigno thing, talk about the flyers where we're going. So Shane, welcome on. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Heck yeah, man. Uh, I am going to sit back and listen to a little brotherly conversation tonight. Uh, big news in the Flyers Nation, as we have all seen. Um, if you have not yet, Elaine Vignet. That is our <laughs> new head coach. Did I say that right? It's Vigneault. Vigneault. Elaine Vigneault. I don't know why I said Vignet. Whatever. Those That's French our Canadian new coach. Names, you know? Dude, they, they just had to give us another person with these silent vowels and whatnot. It wouldn't be hockey if I'd be able to just look at the name and pronounce it, right? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. You take a look at all the coaches that the Flyers had. They finally hired a French Canadian. You look at the last couple of, like, look at down the list of coaches that they had. It's been like Peter, Craig, John, like Ken, Wayne, Roger. It's like we finally got a French Canadian in there. So it's kind of, uh, I think they, they, it's the first first good move I think they've made in a while. So we'll see. It's, it's a step, right? It's step I, I think so brothers 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 what does this mean to the flyers well uh shane you want to go first or you want me to go first uh I can, I can say something just real quick uh yeah. i think just off the bat i i like the hire um vino was probably if not my top choice one of my top choices that was out there on the market um he plays he typically plays an exciting style of hockey uh he's a proven winner in the NHL. He's got multiple 100 point seasons. He's got a Jack Adams award given to the top coach in the NHL. He's been to two Stanley cup finals, which is really important, even though he's never brought one home. Um, so that kind of proven track record, I think after 
having Dave Haxtall here the last four years was really important. Um, there were a couple of candidates out there that I just didn't really feel that fit this team. Um, guys like Dave Tippett, uh, I wasn't super interested in. Um, so I'm just, I'm glad that the off season starting with this, because like I said, I do, I do think it's a good hire. Um, and like, like Justin already said, I think it's a good step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, I think so I'm, I'm glad you brought up some of the other candidates too, because there's two things I want to touch on. The first thing, and you, you know, you follow Twitter just as much as I do, but kind of seeing what Flyers fans have been saying about this on Twitter, first off about how, <clears throat> you know, making a big deal like out of the Quinville situation. So Joel Quinville, um, a tar- someone that the, I think all Flyers fans were targeting as the guy, right? The guy, he's won three Stanley Cups, um, had the best team of the last 20 years, if you don't count the Red Wings. And he decides to go, you know, Flyers threw a bunch of money at him. We don't know how much, but they threw a bunch of money at him. And he said, you know what? I'm 65 or whatever. I'm going to go coach in South Florida and go hang out with my best friend who's the GM. And that's that. And I think Flyers fans kind of took that and were like, well, the Flyers, this is a failure of the organization somehow, or coaches don't want to come here or sign. It's just kind of, and I just kind of don't understand that. Like if I'm 65, like the dude, the dude's 65, he decided to go play in Florida where it's sunny all the time. They have a pretty good young roster down there his best friend's a gm and he he's already lives there so like i don't really understand why people can't see that it's pretty obvious isn't it i would think so that that vitriol directed at the flyers organization for for quote unquote failing to land quenville really surprised me um you can't you know you can't force a guy to want to coach here and it it really has not like you you illustrated really has nothing to do with the flyers and people saying that people don't want to come here players coaches don't want to come here i think everything that's happened in the last year in philadelphia you know bryce harper that kind of thing has proven that to be false um you know the flyers haven't gone out and gotten a big free agent or a big name lately because it wasn't hextall's uh prerogative it wasn't his plan to do that and so i think that's why it's directed to the flyers like you can't the the rumor is that they offered quenville more money than florida but there's a ton of attractive things about florida i think quenville believes that he can convince artemi panarin and and or sergey Bobrovsky to follow him to florida to add to that roster and he's got like you said his, his best friend calling the shots so that really was like a perfect storm for quenville to just go and kind of be there and it may even be his last coaching gig who knows but to yeah. to to blame the Flyers organization for not landing him is is uh, a little silly in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think, dude, if they get Bobrovsky and Panarin, I mean, that's a that's a good young team. Like, yep. let's be honest, they'll they'll be good. I mean, they they already torched the Flyers the last couple of years, so I mean, they're fast. Um, Bobby Lou is getting really old, but again, if they get if they get Bobrovsky, it's like, pfft. so that was the first thing, and the second thing was kind of like. I was very surprised at how divided the fan base was, at least on Twitter anyway, about getting Vigneault. And it's like, it brings me back to what you were saying about the candidates. What did you, what did you all want? Like what you read off his resume, seven division titles, two president's trophies, a Jack Adams and two final, two cup finals appearances. Um, his first cup finals appearance with Vancouver, they lose to Boston and Tim Thomas, who had like a 1.65 goals against average in the playoffs that year. I mean, he was unbeatable. 
you couldn't score on him. So you, you kind of, okay. And then the next time he takes the Rangers, they win the president's trophy. They go to the, the cup finals and they lose to the Kings who won their second in three years. So, I mean, yeah, he didn't bring home a cup, but he took two teams to the cup finals and lost to two really good teams. Um, so if you're looking at his total resume and his body of work, I mean, the guy has won everywhere that he's been. So, so if you want to look at his final year with New York, it wasn't pretty sure, but from a roster standpoint, that team was not suited well to his style of play. And sure, he, he played some, he played Dan Girardi into the ground and paired him with Ryan McDonough, which wasn't a great move, but it, this guy up and down his career has been a winner every single place that he's went. And so I just keep saying to myself, who, who did you want? If not Elaine Vigneault, tell me somebody who like, give me a name, like, give me, do you want Randy Carlisle? Do you want Michelle Terrian? Do you want Guy Boucher? Who's really only famous for having a scar on his face from a bar fight? Like, what do you people, what do you people want? Yeah, I agree. I, I think most of the things that I've seen have been like, eh. and, and I get that reaction because I think some fans want like a guy that's won. That's why Quinville was so attractive because he won three cups in the last, you know, nine years. Uh, those guys don't grow on trees and not every Stanley cup coach is a good one. Like you mentioned, Randy Carlisle, who I don't particularly think is a great coach. No. Um, but it's ranged from a couple people that I've seen on Twitter that have like, have been like, I love the, I've, I love the hire. And then most of the other ones have been met. And I, I, I understand the meh, I think, um, because he's had that failing and his last few years in New York weren't pretty. I think there's a ton of factors around those last few years in New York. Obviously that roster was trending downward. They get, they got rid of some pieces. They were starting to commit to a rebuild and they were like 30 and 30 something and 40 something their his final year uh, before he got fired. But um, I, if you the, the exciting thing about Elaine Vigneault is if you look at his teams in Vancouver, if you look at the team that went to the cup final in 2011, they had two really good veterans in the Sedin twins. They had young talent in Ryan Kessler, who was a Selkie finalist and who had been a Selkie finalist for a couple years after that. Um, they had Alex Barros, who was younger and good talent on defense. I think that roster compares pretty favorably to what we have here in Philadelphia already. And the other good thing, the other thing to note about Elaine Vigneault is that his teams have both of the teams that he took to the finals were successful <clears throat> because they had really strong goaltending and he knew how to make those goalies better. Uh, yeah. Roberto Luongo nine years ago was a phenomenal goaltender. And obviously when he was in New York, he had Henrik Lundqvist. He seems to know, or at least surround himself with people that know how to get the best out of their goalie situation and being that Philadelphia hopes that it finally has its goalie answer in Carter Hart, uh, that should be really exciting to every Flyers fan because Elaine Vigneault has this uh, potential to get more out of the young defense, the younger offensive players, and to get more out of your franchise goalie, which, like you said, I don't know what more you could want out of that. Um, I, like, again, using Dave Tippett as an example, he had some success in uh, – Arizona, Arizona and Phoenix before that, before they moved. But the thing with him was he was always a super defensive coach. And I just don't think that style of play really fits here. It was a, it was a more sort of high, low uh, situation like what Dave Haxall was doing. And I just don't think that fits this roster. I think they need a more high octane 
kind of attack you first style of play. And I think that's what Elaine Vigneault is going to going to bring here. Sort of like Peter Laviolette. <laughs> yes. Uh, a, a guy who used to coach here. But yeah, a lot of what you just said kind of leads me to what my, what the next thing is, is sort of what, what does it mean for the Flyers and then kind of what we can expect. And, and I guess kind of wrapping that into thoughts from his press conference. And I think you kind of nailed it with um, – <clears throat> He's going to bring offense to the Flyers. I think I think that it means that we can finally return to exciting offensive hockey. I was thinking about this before we we got on. Would you would would you agree that I mean? So you kind of I'm obviously older than you. I've got you by about a um, you know about seven years, and so I've seen some exciting and very dominant teams coming up. But I, I guess when you were growing up and getting really into hockey, I mean, his Vancouver teams had to be one of the the, the first like really good teams you watched, right? Um, yeah, I would think so. Right, right around that period, the, the, those years there. I mean, I remember those, the Flyers teams from 07, 08, you know, I was, I don't know, 14 or so at that point. So I was like starting to actually follow and pay more attention. Um, so like I caught the Penguins run and that's that style of hockey. And, you know, in 2011, that Vancouver team, uh, it was actually, it's actually funny. I remember that Vancouver team so well because the first year I ever did fantasy hockey and yeah. everyone was just vying for Vancouver players because the Sedins were so good. Ryan Kessler had a 40 goal year for the first time. Alex Burroughs scored 30 something like their top two or three lines were just producing at such a rapid clip and they were getting production from their defense on, on the power play too as well. So they were just a really strong team. Obviously Roberto Luongo was phenomenal that year. Um, and like you said, they just ran him up against it's it's interesting when you look at Vigneault too, because he's come up against probably the two best teams of the last decade in the finals. Uh, besides, outside besides of, outside Chicago, of yeah. outside of Chicago, you know when you look at the Kings who won two, and you look at the Bruins who that year, like you said, just were you just couldn't score on them. Um, but, and, and the other thing is too is like, and the reason I bring that up is because you look at. Like I'm, I'm looking at how many seasons he's coached and I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight seasons where they, where his team scored over a hundred points in the regular season. So his teams are going to bring offense and they're going to be good. Like, or, I mean, I mean, his teams are t- traditionally good and offensively skilled. So I think that that is what we can at least hope for you know, to, to get back to, we had Peter Laviolette who brought that system here. It was a, High intensity, aggressive forecheck, stretch the stretch the ice. You know, use transition. Um, not so much reliant on defense, even though we did have good defenders with you know Teamin and Pronger. We were lucky to have good defense, but it didn't rely on a heavy defensive structure. Laviolette was all about taking your game and shoving it down you're taking the you know his game and shoving it right down your throat and i think that Vigneault does a lot of those same things now lobby never had a goalie um and towards the end of his tenure uh, like the team was just you know the, the team had a core that that you know uh was either wasn't responding to him anymore and and they also had guys who you know paul holmgren really failed peter lobby let i think in the end and so we talk all the time about how much we would love to have him back, but I think that we got the next, not the, maybe not the next best thing, but I think we got a guy in the sim in the same mold as Laviolette, if not with a better track, I guess you can't say a better track record because Lobby's won a cup, but if you're someone who 
loved Peter Laviolette when he was here and hated to see him go and has wanted him to come, to come back ever since. I think you're getting basically that here with Vigneault. Yes. And I think one of the things I'm really looking forward to is seeing uh, the type of culture that Vigneault brings with him. Um, you know, you talk about Laviolette. We had the good fortune of seeing him on 24 seven and maybe some of it was pumped up just by, you know, showing off for the camera. But I believe that he was really, he was a fiery coach and he was a, I'm going to hold you accountable coach. And I think that's been lacking a little bit here. Dave Hackstall's uh, disciplinary methods usually were targeted at the younger players. Um, and he tended to prefer veterans and, you know, to our eyes, at least it looked like he, <sighs> Uh, accepted their mistakes a little bit more. Um, you know, the guys like Andrew McDonald that catch a lot of the hate from the fans, the uh, Chris Vandeveldes that we didn't know why they were playing 15 minutes a night. They were given that leash by Hackstall just because they were veterans. And I think Vino needs to bring with him this I'm holding veterans accountable thing. Uh, people, a lot, of, a lot of times you see fans complaining about like Voracek's turnovers. Um, and even Scott Gordon in his exit presser said that there are a ton of bad habits on the team. They're leaving the zone before exit passes have started or before possessions gathered. Things like that that are unacceptable. And that was a thing that Chuck Fletcher and Scott Gordon both mentioned in their exit pressers. And I think that was why fans were a little worried that they were too much on the same page. I think bringing in Vino shows this roster that no one's really safe. And we need to get back to a culture where if you make a mistake, you need to be held accountable for it. And so along with the system that you were talking about, like Laviolette, I think he's going to be the same type of, you know, fiery, uh, I'm going to hold you accountable coach. And I think that's really what this team needs. Yeah. And I think the worry is that you hear all the time, um, you know, about how coaches lose their room. And I think um, there was that worry that, that you know, the belief that Laviolette lost the room. I, I don't know how much stock I, you, you put into that or – uh, I, I feel like I hear it all the time, but a coach losing the room and it kind of drives me crazy because uh, in my back of my mind, I'm kind of like, this is hockey. Like you guys need to step it up. Like if uh, coaches need to be demanding, look at John Tortorella, John Tortorella has a, has a shelf life of like four years. And I know that that comes with his style of coaching, but he gets results. Um, so it just bothers me when, and I think that that this core with, with as much as I love Claude Drew, um, this core with Claude Giroux, Jake Voracek, you know, formerly Wayne Simmons, Sean Couturier, these guys have been a little coddled. Uh, I can't, I can't say that they haven't. I think they've been a little coddled and, uh, you know, I think Vin, there's a little bit of me that worries about Vigneault coming in here and kind of, um, I guess laying down the hammer, even though I think it needs to happen. And I think that's also where Chuck Fletcher needs to, to figure out who is, part of the core moving forward too. You know what I mean? I think, I think that's kind of their, they have, um, they have to get together and figure out, you know, who is going to stay, who's going to be part of this core moving forward. Who can I, and, and Vigneault needs to sit down with Drew and basically say, look, you need to be my voice in the room. Like I'm going to, I'm not going to be a, he's not a player's coach. That's not what he is. So he's not going to be that Scott Gordon communicator type. He's going to tell you what the, he's going to give you the information that you need. Um, he's going to tell you what you need to be, need to get done in order to beat the, whoever our opponent is next. And it's the player's job to go out there and execute. And if you don't, then you'll either miss your, you're going to be losing your ice time or, you know, other, you'll sit in the press box. So I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, 
So for me, you mentioned you mentioned um, worrying a little bit about him coming in and laying down the hammer and and alluding to shipping guys out. For me, at least, at least that's how I interpret it. So if I'm wrong, uh, please correct no, me. No, that's 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 right. But it it kind of leads into his presser, and if we want to go that way, basically what Vino said, he had three check boxes, and the first one was that he wants to win. Um, there was some concern later in the season about Ghost being scratched and what if they trade Ghost this summer and should they trade Jake Voracek or these other guys? And I think that Vino coming here basically tells me that none of that's going to happen. I think they that I think that he knows that he needs to add to this roster. Obviously, you have to give to get, but with a high, um, with a really good crop of free agent players this summer, I think that's where they're going to focus on. We haven't spent on a free agent in this city in hockey. Uh, in in several years now, except last summer, they did go out and get the number two free agent. So that was a good move by Hextall because he finally said, we need to add to the roster instead of building through the draft uh, only. But I think Vigneault knows that Jake Voracek is a top probably five, what right top five right winger in the NHL. Giroux is still an elite player. Uh, Couturier is a Selkie candidate year after year, even though he didn't get a nomination this year. Um, and then the young mobile defense is going to play into his system really well. So I don't see like a big move via trade to blow up the core, quote unquote, because Vino is so set on winning. Um, so that at least puts me at ease. I think he is going to come in and uh, he did sit down with Drew, by the way. He said in his presser that he said uh, he had only talked to one player and it was Drew. So that's good. I'm glad that that conversation's happened. But that's kind of what I see playing out. I see them trying to get free agents and then. Perhaps if they strike out, they might have to look the trade route, but they know they have to add to the roster instead of just like, you know, quote unquote, blowing it up or something like that. So I agree with you on that. Um, I don't know that I share the same philosophy about whether or not he thinks that this is the team. I I actually think he believes and I agree. I think they will pursue free agents. I think that he believes you need to augment the team. And I like to use that word augment. It's a word that we've used together in our discussions. They, I, I think that Vigneault understands that this team hasn't gotten it done as currently constructed and that they, they, they need to go out and pursue other avenues to make the team better. But I do wonder, and I guess we can kind of wrap up our thoughts from the presser and move into kind of the next moves for the team. But, um, you know, I, I do wonder, free agency is so volatile. It just, it is, you know, you're going to have guys like Panarin's going to want $11 million. Is he an $11 million player? No, I don't think so. But is somebody going to pay that? Yeah, they probably will. Um, we've talked about Matt Duchesne, who is playing center for the Columbus Blue Jackets, who just swept the Tampa Bay Lightning, probably the best team of the last regular season anyway, of the last 20 years. Um He's a really interesting name to me, by the way, it, just to interject really quick. I, I've seen a lot of people saying that they don't want him or they wouldn't want to sign Matt Duchesne. And I, I don't understand that personally. I, he's, a pretty, he's, a, he's a pretty good player. If he's going to he call out his coach in a cab, like, is that why you don't like him? Yeah, I'm really not sure. I don't get the, the flat out no to Matt Duchesne. I mean, I think he's like 28. He just had like a four point game the other night en route to that sweep that you just mentioned. You know, he's making $6 million now. I don't think he's going to get 10 on the market. I, I just don't. If, I think he's going to get like five and 
five for like 40 or something like that, somewhere around eight, eight and a half. Okay. I was just going to say, if his price shoots up to what Giroux and Voracek are making, are you going to pay, are you willing to pay that? It's tough because you will then have four players making, right? You'll have four Three, players making right? over, over $7 million if you count JVR. So oh, right, right, that's right. kind of tough for the cap. And, you know, you've got guys to pay. I don't think Provorov's going to break the bank after after his slightly down year this year. I think they're better yeah. off extending him soon. Ghost is on a really friendly contract, and they will have Sandheim, mm-hmm. Konechny, those guys coming up. But, you know, you got to add, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll let you continue because I know you're going to touch on a couple other guys that I have thoughts about as well. Well, I just, I just think that fr- – and, you know, Pete – you're still there, buddy. Feel free to weigh in because this, this, this definitely um, extends to all sports. I just think free agency can be so volatile, and I think that times you end up overpaying. Now, like you said, um, there are. This is a good crop this year, but I think it's top heavy. I don't know if you would agree with that, uh, Shane, but I think that it's fairly top heavy, and especially with defensemen. There's not a defenseman on the free agency list that I would absolutely that would touch with a ten foot pole. Um, I would. I, I would say that I haven't delved too deeply you know it sounds like you've been deeper into that crop than i have i know it's tough i can probably agree just based on the names that i know are at the top you know you've got uh probably three or four super high priced guys one of them's a goalie so we won't be touching that um but uh but yeah i think that's probably a fair assessment so we know that you know obviously eric carlson right he's he's at the top if if, but someone's going to pay him 12 million dollars i don't think that like should we be talking to eric carlson absolutely if it involved uh you know it would be he's he's not he's not tradable so um it's you know it's a he's going to want so much money i just i think you inquire but i think you 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 know you inquire and then you say good day when he asks you for you know 12 million dollars i think you have to move on but that's what he's going to get Dude, he's 29. Um, he's not having a great year in San Jose, but he's making seven and a half now. All right, so maybe he doesn't get 12. Maybe he gets 10. Do you mm-hmm. pay our? Would you pay our Carlson 10 million dollars for four years of of prime Carlson? Uh, yeah, I probably would. Um, <laughs> so, um, it's it's really tough. I I probably would just because. I think he solves a ton of problems right away. You need yeah. you need a right-handed defenseman. You need another puck mover. Um, he really gives you that veteran presence back there. Yeah, it's tough. That's a tough one. Yeah, um, Mark Stone is off the list, right? Because he signed that massive extension in yeah, Vegas. He's, got an he's not extension. going anywhere. Matthew Shane, Jeff Skinner. Jeff Skinner's another one. I think he's making five seven two five right now. I think he's going to get paid. So. Yeah, I wonder because he's with Buffalo, right? So he's not playing right now, but he had a pretty good year. So he may end up making around seven and a half. I see him make. I could see him making a jump up to seven and a half. I can't see him making eight. He's so very think, interesting because I thought he was a winger. Um, Hockey Reference actually lists him as a is. center, which I think is in, that, Ho- that's sort of confusing to me. But Hockey News has him listed as a left winger, right? And that's what I thought he was. But he is an interesting name. I'd be more interested if he could play center. I think. That's one of the things that takes me out of the Jeff Skinner races. I think, I don't know. I, I think they need a center more than anything because yeah. I'm not saying that Nolan Patrick can't be that guy. I'm saying he's not that guy right now. Yeah. You know, Couturier took seven years to develop into the guy that we thought he could be. He had an excellent playoff series against Evgeny Malkin where we saw that flash. But yeah. really to pull his game together, he didn't have more than 40 points until I believe 2017, uh, 2018. 
one of those. Yeah. His first yeah. year playing with Claude Drew. So, you know, I think Patrick will get to a level above where he is right now. I just don't know if we want to go into next season with him as the two C. Yeah, you need somebody uh you need somebody there to, to, to give him a little bit of breathing room to play that 2C. You need, a de- you need a definite 2C. And I don't think you can say Patrick is a definite 2C right now. Can he be a competent 3C? I think so at age 21 or whatever he is. Sure. Well, put him on the third line. Give him third line minutes. Let him grow. I think Absolutely. That's what you got to do with him right now. Now, the rest of the – just going down the rest of the list, you got like Joe Pavelski. Uh, you know, you got like uh, Wayne Simmons. Eh, you know, he's I – don't, I don't think we're going to revisit that. Uh, Anders so. Lee. Anders Lee is eh, – can be a 40-goal guy when he's paired with an elite center, but I don't – Pavelski would be interesting if he wasn't 34. Exactly. Uh, give me Pavelski. He was like 29, 30. Uh, Jake Gardner is really the only def- like defenseman that that kind of jumps out at me. But even then, like he's making $4 million now, and is he better than Shane Gossesbear? I mean, I, he, this year he's got the numbers that say he is, but I don't think – his overall body of work. He's also playing on a, on a much better team than the Flyers are. So I don't know. You know, Jordan Everly, Eric Stahl, Matt Zuccarello. So that you, like, you can see how the drop-off just kind of – Brock Nelson's interesting because he plays center. Um, Actually, you mentioned two names there that were kind of interesting to me. Um, who's that? Jordan Everly, I didn't realize, was a free agent. And so he's a winger. He's 28. He's probably going to get another six and a half million dollar contract. He's pretty good. He's a pretty decent player. Um, First overall pick. He was. He was. Uh, I mean, the the needs are center and and winger, right? You need you need yeah. a scoring winger, and you need a, you need a, an elite. If I guess you could say a leader, very good, to see. So, Jordan center Everly, would be my preference for sure. Center would be my preference and then winger. So if you got Jordan Everly on a friendly contract, he's making six right now, though. That's the thing. I am not paying him six. To Are you paying him six to be on your second line? Ugh, I don't know. This is, this is where I'm at with free agency, though, because free agency is so – You just I just think you end up pay, overpaying with a lot of guys. Now, here's the last guy I think worth talking about because he's somebody that's come up a lot and with Vigneault. Um having this connection is Kevin Hayes. And it's not a name that like excites me at all, but it seems like a lot of people in the know feel like they're intrigued by him. Like Charlie O'Connor of the athletic, like he's someone who's talked about Kevin Hayes a lot and he's making like five, one, seven, five right now. Um, is he, I, I can't really say because I've, I haven't really watched any Rangers games to know, but is he someone that you could see fitting as a two C on our team? I mean, he tortures the flyers. Uh, it seems like every time he plays the flyers, he, he scores or does something. Um, I, I don't know that much about him to be perfectly honest with you. I know that he's had some good games against the flyers. I I'd have to dive deeper into his numbers. Uh, if he's not, he's making five, one, seven, five. Um, and he had 55 points this year. It was minus two on a bad team. His possession numbers are pretty good. Yeah, it's it's a name that interests me. Uh, he won't break the bank, you know. Then it's then it's him and Patrick competing for that for that two C. For getting a center, I, obviously, I think I'd still rather spend the money on Duchesne personally. But yeah, yeah, I think you know, if you my- miss out on Duchesne and believe that Patrick isn't ready for that role yet, guy kind of with familiarity might not be the worst move. So kind of looking, looking forward here. Um, 
and kind of, I guess, to wrap up this Elaine Vigneault stuff, you know, I think that it's basically back to what you're saying. So does, does Matthew Shane and Jeff Skinner do it for you? If that's all they come away with this summer and then they don't make any other internal moves, maybe they resign Cam Talbot, I guess, or, and, and that's what you've got. And, and nobody gets traded. Like ghost doesn't get traded. You don't augment the defense in any other way. Um, maybe you sign, see, I don't, I don't think you would sign a veteran because you, you don't have anywhere you can put Sam Moran. Um, you, you would have to assume they're going to buy out Andrew McDonald does getting those two guys make you happy? I mean, yeah, I would think that's a pretty successful offseason, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I, I think the, the likelihood of that is pretty low because they're both – I think they're both going to get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Duchesne's probably going to get eight. Uh, Skinner's probably going to get somewhere around seven. So you need that 15 mil. I think right now they have like 28 mil in space and then they've got to pay a bunch of guys. I've seen some estimates around like 11 mil, 11, 12 mil they'll have to spend. So you're really looking at like one of those guys or one of those guys and some smaller moves. And yeah, I I would be very excited if they got Duchesne and Jeff Skinner, because then your top six is extremely formidable. Then you have guys like Travis Konechny on your third line playing with Patrick instead of in a second line role. And Travis Konechny is dangerous. You know, he's a dangerous pesky player that in a good system has the chance to score between 20 and 30 goals. So in that scenario, yes, I would be happy. Um, I think in my heart, I believe they're going to add to the defense somehow. I believe a McDonald buyout is on the horizon and would just make so much sense um, and would make a lot of Flyers fans happy, to be perfectly honest. And then I just believe that they're going to find a veteran out there somewhere to, to put on that defense because Fletcher has said, I think in his press conferences, that he feels that they're young and they need some veterans. Hextall was confident that with their years of experience, Provorov and Ghost could be those veterans. Um, that's why I believe they will talk to Carlson extensively mm-hmm. just to, to have a guy to come in and lead. But, you know, Skinner and Duchesne would be a great, would be a great offseason in my opinion. I agree. And then the final thing that I would like to, the final stamp that I'd like to put on this would be that, uh, uh, you can thank me when, uh, uh, Fletcher, uh, offer sheets, Braden point, and he becomes our two C and then, uh, we, uh, it's going to happen. Listen, someone, somebody is going to offer sheets someone. I'm telling you right now, this is my rant and I'm, I'm going to end here. This is my rant. Okay. And Pete, this is for you too restricted those in those that are listening that don't understand how this works there's a thing called restricted free agency and that means that the team has the right to negotiate with you before anything else but there's this loophole called the offer sheet and if you so a gm can say "Ooh, i'm going to send over this piece of paper that says i want this player and i'm going to offer them this much money if let's say we i offer sheet braden point Nine million dollars. Okay, the Tampa Bay Lightning have you know a certain amount of time before they can say we're either going to match it or no, he's yours. And then we get him for nine million dollars, but we have to pay him that, right? So it's risky. So uh, you have to. It, it, it's sort of this unwritten rule, I think, that hasn't occurred in the NHL in a long time because GMs don't like to tick each other off, I guess, or they don't like to burn bridges with agents and each other. So nobody offers sheets anybody. But this year there happens to be like several high level 
young restricted free agents, Mitch Marner, Braden Point being two two of those guys. And I just have this feeling somebody is going to get offer sheeted. I really do. Because if you look at Tampa, I don't think that they can pay Braden Point in the future. I don't think Toronto is going to be able to pay Mitch Marner um, in the future, honestly. So if a team, a team, Fletcher could easily call up either of those two teams and say, Hey, let's work out a trade. Otherwise, I'm going to offer sheet you and force you to, to put you in a cap situation by signing these two to a ridiculous amount of money. You know what I mean? Like, it's not super, like, obviously, I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but it's not super far fetched to see that that could happen. I don't see why you couldn't use it as a bargaining chip. I don't That's either. My, I just yeah. think that for those two guys, you're going to have to pay King's ransom to get that trade. And then the problem with the offer sheet is then, okay, they sign it. Then you have to pay them that. Then you have to pay Braden point nine million, or you have to play, or you have to pay 11 million to Mitch Marner. And you know, he had 94 points this year, but is he an $11 million player, a Connor McDavid, Austin Matthews level player? I'm not sure. So, or so there's, say- it's a double-edged sword when you do that. Right, but or they have to, or na- or they now have to match what you said, and then you can work out a trade with another player. You see where I'm going with this? I think Tampa, <laughs> I think the Flyers and Tampa are going to be in conversations anyway. They have yeah. a pretty storied history of trades, and I think yeah. Tampa is going to be looking for answers now. Yeah. So to conclude, I think um, I, I I think there's reason for optimism here with getting Vigneault. I think it signals a change in philosophy, a welcome change in philosophy for this organization to get back to number one, exciting hockey, to get back to a win now mode, using, utilizing these players, putting these players in a system that allows them to thrive. No more boring, low to high hockey. Oh my God. I just can't wait to not watch this team be boring anymore. Like I just that the last five years have just been such bad hockey. I, I literally, it's like, I feel like I don't know where that time went. I really don't. I, I just watching this team has been such a chore for the last five years. I want to get back to exciting hockey. I think that we're going to get back there. Maybe we give them a year to figure it out. Maybe they're not in the playoffs right away, but they also could be. I think they very well could be in the playoffs with a really good summer. So I think people should be cautiously optimistic about the Flyers after all this. And again, seeing what happens this summer. I agree. I agree completely. So, Shane, I want to thank you for jumping on with us tonight. I know you got to go, um, but, you know, good to have someone else that uh, understands hockey, knows the Flyers history, kind of uh, is tapped into the Flyers, um, the vein of the Flyers and, t- and uh, tapped into kind of uh, all the all of the what's going on out there right now. So um, I'm sure we'll have you on again. Um, I have your information, unfortunately, so I do know how to get in touch with you. Um, so we'll be talking flyers, uh, more and, uh, yeah, no, just appreciate you. Ha- appreciate having you on. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be talking after a good off season. Thanks yeah, for having for me sure. guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on, man. All righty. Easy guys. All right. Well, I have about five pages of notes after that exhilarating conversation. Uh, I learned more about the flyers, um, and, I had no idea about the offer sheet, to be honest. Uh, those It reminded me a lot of myself on eBay where I kind of <laughs> – I, I make an offer that I think is 
I don't, like when I'm bidding for <clears throat> camera equipment, I'll make a bid that's out of my price range, but I think someone's going to top it. And then like when, when they outbid me, I'm, I'm partially disappointed because I'm not getting the piece of equipment, but I also know that I didn't really have the funds to get it. It's one so, of those weird things, man. It's just like it, 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 hockey has a lot of those quirks, but it's one of those weird things that no one ever does. And so my argument is like, well, take it out of the CBA then. If if, if no one's going to do it, if GMs are too scared to do it because they're going to burn a bridge, like just take it out of the CBA. It's Otherwise, it's pointless. Yeah, I was going to say uh, first I was going to be like, and the one thing I took out of that is that Justin is trying to take the uh, sportsmanship <laughs> out of hockey and, and completely ruin it. But yeah, it sounds like an exciting time for the Flyers, and I look forward to getting uh, the full lowdown on Flyers and what I need to watch for next season. Uh, also, Vigneault. It's good to know that that's his last name, not Vignet. Uh, but either way, it sounds pretty, pretty decent. I, while I was looking at his numbers, I was just kind of I was listening to you guys and reading up more about him. Uh, reminded me a lot of an Andy Reid type coach, where he's always in the playoffs, he's always competing, but he was never able to get over that final hump. So hopefully that cha- I mean, hopefully that changes in his case. Uh, maybe it yeah. just takes a new city. No matter what, though, I think, and this is the last thing and we'll transition, but no matter what, I just think the biggest thing is that you're getting a a very good coach. Um, you know, you're getting, even when, you know, Big Red went to Kansas City, like if you were a Kansas City fan, you had to be at least a little bit excited because for the majority of his time with the Eagles, he won. And, and that's what you're getting. Like you're not getting the guarantee of a Stanley Cup, but you're getting at least – you, you're getting a coach where you know everywhere he's been, he's won. And not only that, he's won kind of impressively af- aside from getting a Stanley Cup. So for me, that is a welcome change, and I will gladly take that over what we've had. And if it results in a cup, amazing. If it, if it doesn't, we'll figure it out from there. Dan, like you said, the, you guys were talking about it. and it was, it was funny sitting there listening to you guys talk because I was not about to release a peep with my uh, – <laughs> I was like, I would like to comment here, but I don't think that this is – I don't want to interrupt this beautiful thing that is two brothers talking. Um, but I, I guess what I saw – I mean, you're talking about him being a very offensive coach and just my, you know – very, uh, I don't know, common man's perspective is that when you have a goalie who you can rely on defensively, that allows you to be more aggressive on the offensive attack. Um, so if he, if he had, do you think if he had come in here prior to Car- Carter Hart, it would have had to be a different uh, scenario? Or do you think that the pieces just lined up correctly and he was the guy at the time? Well, so without getting too technical, what I'll say is is that um, you know we talked about Peter Laviolette too, and, and the, um, the 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 similarities between those two. A style that he employs, where it's it's basically the way I can describe it without getting again getting too technical, is that it is it is an in-your-face offensive system that can sometimes bleed shots against. So it can sometimes allow like you're basically you're basically throwing darts, right? You're throwing darts at the other, at the dartboard and hope, but you're throwing high danger darts. Like you're throwing darts that are almost hitting center every time. So his, his system relies on high danger scoring chances and it relies on transition uh, and sort of just 
you know, stretch passing, a lot of speed. Okay, a lot of speed, and so it and it also requires like the defenseman activating up the ice. So the defenseman getting heavily involved in the play. Now, what can happen in that situation is your defenseman can get burned, right? So it can result on it can result in transition the other way. The reason why he's been so successful in the past is because he's had elite goaltenders who can handle that load. So to answer your question. If he was here within the last four years, I think his system would have been a disaster because he not only didn't have the defenseman who could activate, but he also didn't have the goalie. So I think he would have been an utter failure here. I think this makes sense here because now you you, you have a young, potentially very good defensive core and a young, potentially very, very good goaltender. So I think like, and that's why I said at the very end, you know, give him a year. It might not happen right away, but I think that the pieces are here. I don't think he would have come here. I don't think he would have come here like in the last couple of years. I think he came here now because he sees what we have. Yeah. It's, it's the stars are all aligning and it's the right fit. I feel that. And transitioning into another team that has at times an incredible offensive attack, but gets burned on the defensive end. Our Sixers, we're up two games to one. It's been an interesting series. I didn't get to watch last night, but I caught some of the highlights. And before we get into the game, I just want to touch on this uh, this Chris, uh, this article that came out that um, that I am writing a piece about right now. It was Chris Sheridan of ESPN uh, put out an, a really interesting to me, it was just like we have just gotten over the Carson Wentz slander piece and then this comes out and I see it and my dad actually sent me the link to it. Did you get a chance to read the full article? I don't know. I had sent it to you, but uh, honestly, it was, I didn't. But you gave me the gist and it sort of made me like not want to read it, even though I, I feel like as as someone who talks sports, I need to do my due diligence on it and, and read it. Um I'm sort of a little weary of I've become more weary of these types of stories, but go ahead and tell us about it anyway. So I'm, I'm working on a, what is just becoming a longer and longer piece for section two one five as I delve deeper into it. Cause when it first came out, it felt exactly like the Wentz story. That was just a slander piece uh, put out from a guy who just didn't like Carson Wentz. And then the more I looked into it, you know, Chris Sheridan is a respected journalist. He spent 18 years at the Associated Press before six years at ESPN. And then he started his own, uh, it was called SheridanHoops.com. And he actually broke the news that LeBron James was going to return to the Cavs uh, before any other reporter did. So he has sources in the NBA. He has a, a long, long-winded resume from the NBA. <clears throat> And a, an even crazier twist in the story, or I, I don't know if it's being blown up to be more than it is, but he spent a month and uh, about a month and change last year covering the Sixers for NJ.com. So he's been with the team. He's established some sort of source within the team so he knows about the Sixers. Now he moves on to contribute to the NY Daily News and I'm I'm trying to figure it out right right now because it it could be a piece that he's just trying to engage in the Brooklyn audience and get them hype up because the moral of the story is that the Sixers have everything to lose in this series and the the Nets have nothing to lose so that's why um, 
I, I guess he's trying to engage the Brooklyn audience and saying we can do this because we have nothing to lose. So basically what the gist is that he when he was covering the team, he there was there was something about Ben Simmons going out and getting drunk before the night before no, the game. Had, this had nothing to do with when he was covering the team. It was actually oh. when I, I looked deeper into it that I found out that he covered the team. Oh, OK. okay. It's based around this season. <clears throat> and. I mean, the headline is that Brett Brown is headed towards coaching purgatory. And it's no surprise that if we lose in the first round and even in the second round, it's unlikely that Brett Brown comes back to coach this team. Then I went on to talk about how he lost. the. It was touching on a lot of things that have been covered in Philly's uh, media already, like when he lost the locker room with Jimmy Butler getting in his face and how uh, he had brought. Bruce Bowen in one game to uh, talk to the team about the San Antonio Spurs culture. So that was all stuff we've heard, but you know, whatever. And then he starts talking about Ben Simmons and in the March 25th loss to the Orlando magic, he sat out due to a stomach virus when in reality it was that he was partying the night before in Orlando and that he was too hung over to play. I just, I, that's not Ben Simmons to me. That's not the persona that Ben Simmons has given off at all in his time in Philadelphia. That's why I don't believe it. You know, but here's the thing, dude. Like, we have to remember, too, that even you're probably going to hear this stuff. It's not going to be the end of hearing these things from about some of these athletes like Wentz and, and Ben Simmons and Joel B. People got to remember, these guys are all young in their early 20s. Like they're they're human beings and they're gonna make mistakes. So if okay, so if Ben Simmons goes out one night and drinks, what is he twenty four? Is he even twenty four? Like, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that there there should be an excuse for that, but for crying out loud, like these guys are human beings too. They're people. Like, let I mean, he's gonna they're gonna make mistakes. I don't see why this has to that has to turn into a story about the culture of the team. Like teams go through these things. Young teams go through these things. They get these things happen. And again, if any of this turns out to be true, I hope that it's not. Obviously, but you also said stuff in there like that. This guy wrote that that Elton Brand was going to try to trade him bead and yeah. Here, no, it was I was actually incorrect when I told you that he was considering. It said that he considered trading Simmons, not Embiid. Uh, considered trading Simmons because he was not culture. He was not coachable, and he, in quotes, he says, a regular season player that's annually exposed in the playoffs. <clears throat> now, my thoughts on that is how can you be a regular season player annually exposed in the playoffs when it's your second season and you're in your second postseason? You can't make that claim that he's annually exposed in the playoffs when last season was the first experience he had. All right, so let me backpedal for a second because, listen – we both, I think, can agree that Ben Simmons is a polarizing player, right? He is. But again, he is a young player. Uh, I can't stand – listen, I'm guilty of this too. Like I, I've been I've been very critical of Ben Simmons at times. But for crying out loud, people, like you got to – we got to get a grip here. I mean th- this – he showed you last night why he is considered one of the franchise players in this, on this team. He, he showed you. Now – why why it takes him you know to be maybe to be called out by a lesser player or or, or why it takes him fan 
you know, it takes the fans. Um, you know, what, what are the, what's the word I'm trying to say? Why is it, why is Booing it, him? Yeah. Why does it take booze or to, to, for him to go off and, and become the player we all know he can be? I'm not a sports psychologist. I don't know. Man, I, have school, I, I have a school counseling degree. I don't, I can't tell you that. But what I do know is he's a young player who's still trying to figure out his place in this league. But last night he showed you exactly the kind of player he can be. And that is a player that I want on my team. So we all need to stop booing him, number one, and we need to get on his side. And we have to understand he's going to make mistakes both on the court and outside of the court. And it, it annoys me when journalists do this. The Philly Voice article on Wentz annoyed me. Um, and I think this is just another example of that. It's probably stuff being taken out of context, probably bits of truth that are stretched. Um, I'm sure it's not all crap, but I'm sure that there's bits of things that are true that maybe are stressed a little bit. I, again, I'm going to read it after this and do my due diligence, but we have, we've got to stop doing this. And, and maybe not, not you and I, obviously, but just we as a society have got to stop doing this to our athletes because we're going to drive these guys out of town. And then what do we have? Like, it's almost like, what do you guys want? What do you people as the fans I'm asking you as, as someone who does a podcast from the fans perspective, what do you as the fan really, what are you trying to get out of booing Ben Simmons? Did, there you like, go. If you, if you want to let us know, you can use the hashtag fan perspective on Twitter or Facebook or comment on this when we put it out. Uh, yeah. I don't really understand why people get on him so hard. Uh, he's so a good young. player, dude. So he's, young. He's a six ten guard. Now like, the only thing the only thing about this piece that separates it from the Philly Voice piece, or I guess not the only thing, but it's a New York newspaper. So right. I, I mean, the team, the Nets aren't working with the New York paper to like, right, convolute some sort of crazy plan to get in the Sixers' head. But to me, I, I saw it. Sheridan has so much, he's 32 years working in the NBA. So for that reason, I take it seriously. And when he's, he's produced work for ESPN and the Associated Press, I'll take that a little more seriously than whatever that guy's name was for phillyvoice.com. Joe St. Aliquido, it's yeah, not even worth saying, but. It, <clears throat> it's, it's two different levels of, of journalism. I guess validity. I would consider Chris Sheridan a validity of a, a valid reporter. So when I when I looked at it, it was basically he had a long tenured career with the ESPN and Associated Press, and he's in the past three years, it's just been like three months stints and six months stints at different places. So I don't know if he's struggling in his career. And this was. Um, effort to win over the New York daily news reader readership and earn some revenue. I'm really not certain, but it was a little bit concerning because of his position and how, how much time he spent in the league. And also uh, the Sixers VP of communication had a really um, atypical response for the Sixers brand, their communications and their public relations are usually pretty tight. Uh, not a lot gets out. They're able to control the message and keep it professional. 
And Dave Scholler, uh, vice president of communications for the Sixers, tweets that this is one of the most irresponsible hack jobs I've ever seen in more than a decade of working in sports. Factual inaccuracies, made up stories and references to conversations that never happened. This is a steaming pile of trash, steaming pile. I don't know how so to feel about one that. Way to, yeah, that's one way to say it. So again, and that's his job. Like we know that's his job, right? But I don't know to, if it's his to, job to go at it like that. That's very well. Yeah, hard. for for I was just going to say to to go at it that level though makes you think that there's something extra there. Now, let's let's just say this, and then we can put it to bed and talk about the game because that's really what's important here. Yeah. But are there like do I agree that I think that there are going to be conversations that need to happen after the season? Sure. Like we're going to wonder is does Jimmy Butler want to stay here? Does is Brett Brown the coach for this team? Like. <sighs> is you know is everybody happy i guess like i you know i don't know i would like to think that joel and ben are happy here okay is jimmy butler happy here i like to think so um should they give him a max contract I, they probably should and I, I hope that they will um do i think that there's some sort of like you know locker room thing going on here with this team i'm not in the locker room so i don't know but i don't i wouldn't have any reason to believe that so i almost kind of just don't want to give it any any thought or recognition because you know until I hear it from a team source or until I hear it from a player, it's really not worth devoting any energy to. And and I, I liked Ben Simmons' response to the question about him drinking, um, you know, during the media availability. He was just like, "Come on, man!" Like, like dude, LeBron let's, James let's walks into the arena with a glass of wine when he plays right. a game. So, like, I, I listen. I, I really don't want to hear about players like young players going out and having a good time. Like, yeah, okay. Like if you go out and get drunk the night before a game and like you're not ready, you're not good for the next day for the game. Yeah, that's that's the coach needs to sit you down and and tell you that that's not acceptable and maybe there needs to be a fine involved. Okay, that's where it ends. It doesn't need to go any further than that. He's a young player who makes a mistake and hopefully never makes it again. I don't see why it, it has to go beyond that. No, I, I agree. And it was something that seemed to be put out at the perfect time for a Brooklyn-based or New York-based publication who is trying to cause commotion throughout Philadelphia. But like I said, the only reason that I look at that and try and analyze it with an unbiased viewpoint is just that per, at times we can get clouded and not be willing to accept the fact that our team is not perfect. Uh, the organ, not everything is all good in the organization. And I, I, I don't know why I look at this and think there could be some validity to it other than Sheridan's past. And because we're human beings and we naturally gravitate towards those things when it has to do with our team, teams that we care deeply about. So, you know, like it's like I told you, I'll read it. I'll probably, you know, sit down later, pour myself a glass of vino and 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 give it a and give it a read. But you know, beyond that, I, I can't say I'm gonna look at it and and I'll probably just read it and go, hmm, okay, and go yes. back to, go back to watching the Phillies. Yeah, and now especially that uh, it's a two-one lead. This article was basically saying Brooklyn could steal it in Brooklyn and then win the series because the Sixers are so afraid of what they're going to lose as opposed to winning. Whereas I think Brett Brown stepping it up in game two and kind of laying his foot down and saying, you know what? I'm not going to baby you guys. I'm going to rip into you. 
I think the team responded to that. We saw how they played in the second half of game two. And then last night, the score was kind of close at times. But really, when when they needed to pull away, they pulled away uh, without their big man. Ben Simmons showed us that he is able to lead the team. He's able to take over, drop 31 points, nine assists. You know, that's good numbers. Uh, Tobias Harris stepped up big for the first time in the playoffs, which is really good to see. It's a, it was a little bit of a concern that he was playing a very quiet support role in those first few games. And J.J. Redick went off last night for a really solid game, which, I mean, it's good to see when your big man is out that the other players are able to step up and beat a team who... They're not bad, man. They're a pesky team. They're going to be scrappy. I think they're more annoying than the Miami Heat last season, and the Miami Heat felt like a real pain in the neck. But it's just one of those teams you know you should beat, but they're going to give you a hard fight every game. And if they get hot, if Russell gets hot, it can be a tough night. Yeah, it seems like they just shoot really well, kind of like uh, um, the Celtics. Um, they kind of just sh- are a really good shooting team at times. Not so much last night, but it did seem like like Russell could just pull up at, at any time and just kind of drain a three. Um, but I, 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 obviously the most important thing out of last night was, was Ben Simmons' utter domination of the court. Um, you saw uh, Tobias chip in, which was really nice to see because he was someone we were kind of wondering, like, it just, you know, what's his place moving forward? But Ben just took over, dude, you know? And, and you know, I know, I, I know, were you, I don't know if you were familiar, you, we were saying before you didn't know about this whole Jared Dudley situation, but like Jared Dudley basically said before, after the first game, right? Or after this, I forget, after. The second game, he basically told the media that he thought Ben Simmons was an average player in the half court or something like that, right? It's a really then, smart statement in the middle of a playoff series, right? And then, and then, and then Simmons after they just lost a, a game, um, uh, and then so they ask Ben Simmons in the media, and he's like, "It's Jared Dudley, man. Come on, you know what I mean?" Um, it's, and it was That's just awesome. it's 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 gotten overblown already. It's already gotten more more coverage than it should have, but you know. That seems like that lit a fire. Now, again, like I, I hope what what my hope is is that what we saw last night out of Ben is the kind of player, like I said, that I think that he can be. And for so for me, that game last night was was it was great. It was a great to get a win and everything. I think we know the Sixers are better than the Nets, and so I'm not really looking at a, at a ton of things um, individually about that game, other than the fact that I just needed to see Ben come in and dominate. And he did. And he did, dude. Like he ran the court. Um, he drove the lane. He was dominant inside the paint. You know what I mean? At times, like it, you just saw like every time they'd open up the lane, I don't know why they did this, but every time they opened, they like they gave him a lane. He just went in and jammed it home, dude. And it was just that's that is what I, I need out of my 6'10 point guard. You know what yes. I mean? Yes. I don't I don't need you to go in like like take two steps in turn around and dish it back out to Joel Embiid who shouldn't be out there anyway like I need you to drive in get a foul or to work that you know you work that inside and get that layup like I know you can do or if they're going to give you the lane like they've been you're just going to jam it home like I yeah, just, if they're, they're going to give but, him the lane, man, if they're going to give him the lane that's the end of the series you Simmons will attack the lane when it's open it's when they block him, that's when he kind of – he's not as aggressive when a defender bodies him up. But. Right. And I think that you – I think it's different. Like 
Brooklyn plays a man defense, right? Like I think they, they play a, a just a basic man, uh, man to man scheme. Whereas Boston plays, what would you call that? I, I was thinking about this earlier. Do you, would you call that like a pressure zone? Is they definitely it's, play? It's like the NBA's version of a zone where there's a lot of talking, a lot of switching, and you have your man, but it's kind of like guarding your man and a zone at the same time. And like I said, it's a lot of communication where. If you if you don't communicate, you're kind of screwed. But right, they're very they good kinda, at it. They kind of wall off the paint. You know what I mean? Like they kind of create like a barrier around the paint with their zone, and so they it's it's similar to. Is it is, almost? Would we say that it's challenging them to shoot the three? Is that kind of what they're trying to yes. do by doing that? So. And the reason I know this is a this is a funny comparison, but so I coach water polo in high school. So uh, the defense that we try to run is also like a press where you want to try to force um, low percentage shots to the outside. Um, and so that's basically I think what Boston's scheme is. You force a team to shoot um, from the outside and you see how we struggle against them all the time. Like Ben can never he has a lot of trouble penetrating that that zone defense. And so he resorts to dishing it back outside or where we, we try to shoot from the perimeter and on a night where we don't shoot well, we typically, that's why we only won one game against him this year. So I think then I think we, number one, I want to see Ben do it again, like for the rest of the series. I want to see him do it again. Um, two questions I have are one, does he do that with him beating the game? Or does he just do that only when it's just hit the Ben Simmons show? Um, is that a rhetorical you, question? Or is I, that a, I don't know. Is I you, mean, I think that when Embiid's in the game, that definitely clogs up the lane for Simmons a little bit because Embiid's down there. Yeah, I think yeah. You take, they have to work it out, and they haven't seemed to work it out yet. I mean, they work together well, and they can play together. But it doesn't seem like they've spent enough time really developing a plan where Embiid can be on the interior and Simmons can still drive. And it's, I, I think it's as simple as just be opposite of Embiid. And ha- as soon as he sees Ben drive to the lane, just step back a little bit because Embiid's man is either going to switch over and help on Simmons driving in and then you just dish it off for an easy layup or slam dunk, whatever you want. Or... He doesn't cover, and you have a one-on-one matchup, and that's where Ben needs to body the guy. I think a lot of times it's a one-on-one matchup, and Ben isn't willing to just physically dominate his man. He'll get himself into a position where he backs him down and then does a, a weak fadeaway, uh, which he hits sometimes, that little like five-foot fadeaway, but it's, yeah, not, it's yeah. not the best option. Or he'll just kick it out or, or turn it over, get himself stuck in there. Where I'd love to see him just go in, and when it's a one-on-one matchup, you're 6'10", assert your dominance. And even if it requires backing down and turning into a post player, he's shown us that he has the ability to straight up back down his defender and act like a big man with such a height advantage. You have to use your strengths. Don't try yes. and do anything that you can't do. And when your strength is that you're four inches taller than your man and you're a a physical player. He can be a physical player. He just needs to commit to it. And so I think that is the the the, the two next things are for him to number a figure out can you do that? Can you do that um, with Embiid in the game, knowing when you need to take the the rock to the house yourself, and and like knowing when the team needs you to do that. 
versus giving the ball to Embiid or someone else. Like you're a great assist man. Like you're going to be a great, you're going to be a great, uh, you're going to be a great uh, passer in this league. Okay. But someone, you know, he, he, a big part of his growth is figuring out when he just needs to take the ball and go. And then the second thing I think is figuring out how to beat that Boston defense. Um, because I, th- I think that's huge for him because I think if he continues to just get shut out by that kind of defense, I mean, it's just, you can't be that predictable as a player. Um, and again, I, I do think, I just want to see him do that more often. I want to see this become a thing. I want to see, the, I want to see Ben Simmons take over games because if you have two guys that they could just dominate games, I mean, that's what we envisioned, right? That's, that's sort of where we saw this going. I, I think that, it's kind of on the coach. It's kind of on the coach to be able to develop a game plan where they're both able to thrive as co-superstars. I think there's a lot of focus on getting the ball inside to Embiid, and you always see they dribble down, pass it to the wing, and just get it into Embiid and watch him go to work. And while he's a horse down there, he can do whatever he wants. When you have a guy like Simmons... Maybe he's a little bit timid in trying to take over the game because there's so much focus on Embiid, Embiid, Embiid. And really, I don't know, because Embiid spends a lot of time outside as well. If Embiid's outside, the lane's open for Simmons, no? Right, no, you would think, you would think. Um, but they, they can't like the work it's, that it's... It's an easy play when Ben, when when Joel is inside. You have the best big man in the game. I, you obviously want to try to get him the ball first. That's your that's your first go to. And if if he's double teamed or if he can't, you know, if he can't make it work out, then you give the ball back out to Ben or to JJ or to Jimmy to shoot right or or, or Ben to see if he can get a one on one. That's kind of what the Sixers' offense is. So yeah, I agree. It's it's kind of on coaching. Um, Let me. Can I can I ask you a question? Go ahead. I guess. I know that the NBA is a, it's a different league than when I was a youngin and you were a youngin. But does it feel stagnant or I don't know exactly the word I'm looking for when you just keep feeding the ball into Embiid? I feel like the Sixers offense is best when that ball is moving, players are cutting through the lane, there's <clears throat> less dribbling, constant movement. And I know that's kind of a high school basketball mentality where you want to keep the ball moving, but it's just when the ball's moving, the defense is moving. It, it feels like it flows better. I don't know if that's just a visual where it is flowing better because there's constant movement as opposed to Joel taking his time and dominating on the post, which is a nice well, thing to see. But See, I'm kind of a fan of the dominating center. You know what I mean? And it's, which, is, which is crazy because, you know, as someone who grew up with that 2000 team or the 2001 team where Shaq just literally just took us to, you know, just, what am I trying to say? Like just took us to the cleaners, like in the paint, town. you know, um, and, and watching how frustrating that was, I just could appreciate the greatness there with him. And so I, I appreciate the greatness of Joel Embiid and his potential. And so I have no problem with that style of play. It, it there kind of hasn't been a dominant big man since Shaq, right? Um, there, there really hasn't. You, you know, Dwight you had, Howard had a chance. Dwight Howard had a chance before injuries took a hold. You know, um, Greg Oden never really got his chance. Uh, bowling, bowling guy never got his chance. Um, really. Um, so, yeah, I like that style of play. I think there's a place for the dominant center in the game um, if he can stay healthy. Uh, 
so, but I, but I, I do really enjoy the transition style of play too. I think basketball is beautiful in, in transition. I think it's a really, really, really fun thing to watch when, when the ball is moving, like you said, and it's just like, it's just watching art being created. You know what I mean? And I think it's very much like hockey in that way. When you see like a tic-tac-toe play form that, oh, yeah. that results in a goal, it's, it's very, very fun to watch. And so, I um, think, I think that's, I'm sorry, the best thing is when they get that extra pass. Like you see a a shot that is open, but it might be contested, and then they dish it out to a wide open guy for a three. And the reason he's open is because of all the movement, not because the play worked. You move around, you hit the open yeah. man, you get those open threes. I actually and and you can kind of give me your take. Um I actually think that the game was sort of hurt by the Steph Curry style play, as good as he is, I hate to say it, but as good as he is, I, I really think in a way that's not basketball, you know what I mean? Like as for as, as much as he was just draining threes, like in the end, like, I mean, so many coaches were just like, I mean, you can't really defend it. So like when you're just losing to a guy that's just draining 15 threes in a game, how do you defend that? You know what I mean? It's not really basketball. So I kind of, I would take, the dominant center and the transition over just just high percentage shooting threes because that's just not basketball. That's that's all star game. Shooting threes is a part of the game, but you, you know back when Curry was. I mean, he's still doing it, but like a couple of years ago, he was just ridiculous. I mean, yeah, I I think that's where you have to change up your defensive scheme a little bit and go anti NBA. The NBA plays man to man or the Boston zone, whatever it is. They never incorporate any other type of defense. Is that a rule? Is that a rule that you can't incorporate any other defense? I mean, it can't be that you can't full court press because TJ McConnell does it every minute that he's in the game. Yeah, there's no rule against that. But if you run a 1-3-1 or something where you're trying to trap Curry in the in the uh, half court corner area, you're forcing him to make a move under pressure. The NBA has a lot of players who are able to just kick it out and someone else will hit the shot, but it's just a different angle. Attack him at half court, trap him, and make someone else make the play. If that, I mean, it's difficult now with Kevin Durant and the whole cast, but <clears throat> before when it was Steph, Clay Thompson, and Draymond kind of running the show, if you trap Steph in that cornerish area of uh, half court – and then make sure you have somebody on clay that forces either Draymond Green or at the time it was probably Harrison Barnes or Andrew Bogut to make a play. You don't ever see that kind of defense in the NBA, even in the playoffs. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's new age basketball. Old school basketball fans turned new age. Would that be it? I mean, I guess I'm not even an old school fan. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, can't even. I can't remember the 2001 team because I was what, six years old, but growing up playing basketball my entire life and watching college basketball, you see the different types of hustle play. And I always had said, I like the college basketball game better than the NBA because it's so much faster and there's less skill, but is played at a higher pace with more intensity and less just showmanship. I'm going to take you one-on-one. It was more of a team game. The NBA is completely different now, but that's a whole different yeah. discussion. That's a whole different discussion, but and so I guess to um to sort of wrap on the on the on the Sixers, I think that they've got this series. I think I think we know that they're a better team. We're looking. I think we're looking kind of ahead. Let's 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 take care of business. Let's let's put these guys away. Let's come home and finish it. 
Are you worried about Embiid? This is um, exactly what I what. because I think my gut feeling is I read this on Twitter the other day that um, someone said that the type of brace that he was wearing was indicative of knee tendonitis, which is not something that goes away or goes away easily. So, but I thought that he had injured that in a collision, like with the ground or with another player. So I, I don't remember when it happened. So I don't know what the reliability of that statement is, but are we worried about Embiid? Like, do we need to worry that this is an every year thing or is he just getting maintenance? Because to, to be honest, I think we kind of know he's not, I don't think we really need him for the rest of the series. So I'm actually okay if we just kind of sit him for the rest of the series. Um, I don't think we need him. I think he, if we need him to just get healthy, you sit him for the rest of the series and, and just let everybody else take the nets and um, you get him healthy for the second round. But if this is an every year thing with him or do we think that – me personally, I'd be fine with just shutting him down for the series because I don't think that we need him and then getting him active for the second round because I, I think that – you know. Simmons and company can just kind of take care of business, uh, come home and win the series. And then, uh, or would we have to win it on the road now? We'd have to win it on the road now, right? Wait, one, two. No, no. If they win tomorrow in Brooklyn, they can come home and win it at home. <laughs> That's right. right. So come home, come home and win it and take care of business. But are we worried? My well, take is that I, you know, he's, he's a big man and this is exactly why they're limiting his mileage. It's just kind of the nature of the style that he plays. And I think every year you're going to have to, to delay his injuries a little bit. And I think this is just kind of what you get with him. People, I'm seeing people are like, oh man, Embiid every year. Well, dude, like he's seven two. like he plays a, the hardest position in the game. He's going to have injuries. I mean, it's just, it's not normal to be seven two. Yeah. Your body's going to take a beating out there. So yeah, he's going to, he's going to have to deal with some injuries here and there. What were you saying about tendonitis? I, I heard a little bit, but that's when it was freezing all out. There was something on Twitter about someone pointing out that the brace that he was wearing was indicative of, of knee tendonitis, which is not something that goes away or goes away easily. Okay. And so wondering if that was, you know, kind of, I guess, pontificating that he's going to have this issue. But I thought that he injured that in a collision with the ground or with another player. Am I wrong? I, I honestly don't remember exactly how it went. Uh, but there's just so many of those theories out there on Twitter that you don't really know what's true from what's just a guy trying to get some retweets. Uh, I think my biggest concern overall is it stems back to what we were talking about in the regular season. He played in the all-star game. Then he takes these 10 games off or whatever to rest. Now he's still having a knee injury. This all stems from back when he played in the All-Star game. If he was having knee injuries before the All-Star game, you don't let him play in the All-Star game. And if it came because he played in the All-Star game, then I guess that's just a bad break. I don't really – you're not going to tell a guy, no, don't play in the All-Star game because you might get injured. That would be – that would be killed. The NBA wouldn't have that, I don't think. Right. right. Kill some, some money. But more importantly – if you're going to, there's a certain extent where I think you're becoming too cautious and you need to just let guys play. If they're going to, you're going to get hurt. If you're going to get hurt, you're going to get hurt. But sitting out of the all-star game is not that. If he was hurt prior to the all-star game, I have a problem with it because now it's, you have him sitting out of meaningful playoff games. These games 
I don't care if it's the Brooklyn Nets and we think we can win without them. I want my best team on the floor. I don't want any letdown. And I want this team continuing to gel because they still have not come to their full potential. There's still four guys who weren't playing together at the beginning of the season. So if you have Embiid sitting on the bench, yes, Ben has a great game. But like we talked about, are they going to be able to work it out when the two are together? Are they going to be able to play a cohesive game when we're playing the Boston Celtics in a seven-game series should it come to that? We're lucky if it comes to that. Hopefully it comes to that. But I do not want to see this team fall apart against the Celtics again because they haven't had enough time to gel because Embiid's on the bench always hurt. Right. And I don't think we'd see them to the finals anyway, and I don't think the Celtics are going to get to the finals. So um, Whoever, I don't have to maybe, worry I'm about sorry. it. But just, just, moving, just moving forward, yeah, it's still concerning when you can't beat a team over and over. But, yeah, I agree. Um, Looking I into, the deep, into the deeper future, like into next year and beyond, this is a really good point to work on having Embiid and Simmons work together so that when Embiid goes out or take some of the focus off Embiid so that he's not so physically tested, put some of the burden on Ben's shoulders and watch the two of them work together. And we're also forgetting about Tobias and Jimmy. We're not forgetting about them. It's just Jimmy Butler can take the team on his back and win a game for them. He can yeah, also we've, we've seen it. We've seen it. So Tobias yeah. Harris has the ability to drop 30 points. Even JJ Redick, he's still putting he's still an incredibly quality starter. Or an incredible quality starter. Don't forget about Bobby, dude. You know. Oh my I, god, that that was one thing I wanted to touch on, dude. That was one thing I wanted to touch on before we stopped talking about the Sixers is that his efficiency is it's off the charts. <laughs> he comes in for 18 minutes and drops 14 points. I I um I put on Facebook the other day that um I thoroughly enjoy now saying like yelling his name like Bobby, like just like <laughs> you would just like you would say Kobe when I when I airball something over the trash can. Oh it's yeah, like I could just like say I can just replace Kobe with Bobby now. Just go Bobby, you know. It's Ken, he's, every th- he's he's absolutely <laughs> owned that elbow jumper. They give him to him every time, and it's not a fluke. Every time he's knocking that bad boy down. That's all. I love that. I love yeah. watching him come in. 15 minutes and score 12 points. That's that's an efficient backup center. I know he's slow and I I don't I don't think he's really a defensive liability because he's seven foot whatever and he sticks his arm up and becomes yeah. a factor in the lane. He's a little bit slow, so when he gets switched yeah. on to a smaller guard or something, it's not a pretty sight. But no, no. What he's giving you as a backup center is gorgeous. I feel really comfortable when Embiid comes out of the game and Bobby comes in. Love it. I love as, it. Yep. As for the rest of the bench, I'd like to see a little bit more out of them. Absolutely. Yep. But story, uh, story of the season. Yeah. Hey, listen, I think we're going to be fine against Brooklyn. You will, like I said, come home, win it, see who we got next. And um, I think this is a different year. I think, uh, you know, seeing uh, I like where we're at after game one. Game one was like. Uh, I think we're all kind of looking around being like, okay, what's going on here? Um, But I think the last two games have been more indicative of what the team is capable of doing. And we're more suited for the playoffs this year. So I am, uh, I am excited to see what the team can do. Uh, Before we move on to opponent, that's going to scare you the most, or you most look forward to, should we move on and who, who do you want to see? Well, I'd like to see it's, I want to go through the best, so I would like to see Toronto um, because I would like to conquer them. I would like us to go through Toronto, and, and honestly, I think that a Sixers-Bucks conference final would be 
just an absolute war of attrition. I think that would be really good television. And I think the NBA would probably prefer a Embiid uh, Giannis reunion for seven games. Let's be honest. Yeah, because I mean that that Celtic series was weird last year, and I don't think it would turn out the same. I think I think they no. finally conquered that some the uh, Celtics demons. So Bucks would be awesome. I love that it's Milwaukee, like yeah. the Milwaukee Bucks. Yep. Who would have thought Milwaukee Sixers? Uh, you know, three years ago, that that would be yep. the matchup that you want. That's what I, that would it's going to be my answer as well. Is I I love watching the Giannis, Joel, Ben kind of try matchup. And to be honest, man, this makes me sound like a poser, but I think Giannis might be my favorite player in the NBA to just watch because he's such he's a so freak. good dude. He's, he's such so a freak. good. That's like, a guy. I, I, oh, go ahead. I was just say that's a guy who's like. He truly can be a center. He truly can just play the role of a big man. But he has the handles of a I, I don't know if I'd say Steph Curry, but he's just he is like a guard. He is a center with guard handles and he's a physical specimen of perfection. And I talk about it all the time, but he is just built well. He's he's lean, yeah. he's toned, he's strong, and he's, he's like quick. a four and, he and a he's like a four and a half. Yeah. Like he's he's not a four, he's not a five, he's like a four and a half. Like he's just a, he's just a freak, and I just he's just a really really good player. And from what I understand, he's a good dude off the court. I don't like him when he's, you know, on fire against us, but he's just a really fun player to watch. Yes, yes he is, sir. And tomorrow. All right, and uh, well, we did that little splice. I do want to clarify that the game is tomorrow at three o'clock. So tune in. Sixers at Nets trying to take a 3-1 lead and see what we can do moving forward. Uh, very quickly, we have another new segment tonight before we close out. This one's called Flipping Out, and it's where we assess a player who has flipped out, and then we probably flip out because this issue in particular is BS, Justin. Have it's we ever repeated a segment, by the way? <laughs> I think that uh, <laughs> we used to do now. I Now you know. We used to do that right. like every week, and then uh, there weren't enough cool stories. <laughs> okay, okay. But we'll, we'll get back to some segments, guys. We had that really cool one where we rated our five favorite baseball movies, and then we never did another one rating anything. All right, football next. Uh, we'll, we'll just – We'll figure it out. We have an endless list of segments and we'll eventually return to all of them. But tonight's is flipping out. What was the one last week? Flashback. We did a flashback with that Chase Hutley home run. So tonight's flipping out. Justin, you actually informed me of this. So why don't you, uh, why don't you kick it off? Well, I think so. So this kind of has, was born out of this, this just ridiculous bat flipping controversy that seems to be so pervasive in baseball right now. But anyway, the Chicago White Sox are playing, um, was it the Rangers the other day, or who's it? Yeah, uh, what the, they're they're a blue they're a blue team. Is it the they're, Blue Jays? Might have been the Blue Jays. Um, and so Tim Anderson, who has like never been good before, but is, is suddenly hitting four hundred this year. Um, he just launches a monster home run, and he he does. He didn't even bat flip; like he sort of like turned to the dugout, took the bat like up at his chest, and like pushed it. And just and which just started and started like barking at his his dugout, just kind of like firing everybody up, and then he started around um, around the bases, um, and so his next time up he gets thrown at, right? And it started this giant brawl, and and it, so that bench is clear. You know how it happens in baseball, um, 
And then so it came out. So it's been, you know, ongoing. This discussion has already been ongoing this year in baseball about bat flipping just over the last couple of years. And I, and I do want to touch on it real quickly. But uh, so essentially it was, it was a brawl. And then um, Tim Anderson ended up getting suspended today. And originally Royals. I, I, I your Royals. OK, they, they were playing the Royals. So they suspended MLB suspended Tim Anderson today. Not for the bat flip, which was what I originally thought. And I was about to freak out, yeah. but for he he had some racially charged um, language in the scrum. So um, which which if you're going to suspend him for that, yeah, that that's totally fine. But the overarching theme of this segment is why are bat flips controversial? Like why why is this? There's part of the old school and part of the new school. Like the old school believes that there's certain unwritten rules in baseball. And I'd like you to weigh in because you were a baseball guy um, and you were a pitcher also. Um, and, you know, I was a catcher, so I, I played catcher in the outfield. So it's 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 not so much my purview, but um, just as a fan, I don't understand. There's So the old school believes in certain things like you don't show up the pitcher. Like you kind of just put your head down like Chase Utley would do. You hit a home run and you, and you start around the bases, right? Um, and that by backflipping, you're showing up the pitcher somehow. You, you, you're, you're stuffing it in the pitcher's face, right? And, the, and that by virtue of doing that, the pitcher, you know, your next time up now, you should expect to maybe take it on the chin. Um, but there's the new school of thought where it's like, doesn't baseball need to – to be exciting. Like, doesn't baseball need personality? And I just, I sort of find myself stuck between both of those worlds because I do think that I'm, I'm totally fine with a bat flip. Like Joey bats that, that bat flip was, oh, that's the one I was going to mention. And it was playoffs. It was intense. Like that bat flip is legendary. And I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was like worthy of being hit. Now, I will say this. I think if you take like a really extended look and you can tell me how you feel about this as a pitcher, but like you, you hit on run and you take an extended look, like you're just like this. Like you take a five second look at it before you, you start running. Like, yeah, I think there is, there's a line. And once you get across that line, I think you can expect to get thrown at. Now we talked about this before. You're going to throw at a guy, you throw at his butt, you throw at his back. Like you don't, you don't throw at the head. You don't throw at the hands. Like you don't do anything like that. It goes both ways. Right. But the idea that like you shouldn't be bat flipping or celebrating in, in 2019 just is idiotic to me because baseball needs more personality and they need, they need that in my opinion. And I just think that it, this old school mentality of where oh, you got it, you have to keep certain traditions intact. I just think it's stupid. Yeah. So I think I'm going to give you my completely unfiltered uh, view on this and I'll just bleep out anything that shouldn't be said. Cause uh, I just want to give you my honest me. And this is, I think bat flips are awesome. Like, especially as a fan, when I like that, that Joey bats one is legendary. And it's, it's 2019. There's smack talk in all the sports. It's, it's a form of, I don't know if I would say it's a form of smack talk exactly, but it's definitely like when you dunk and you stare down a player, if you just knock that ball out of the park, you flip your bat, you got some swag going on there. As a pitcher, I only gave up a few home runs in my career, and I wasn't on the um, MLB level where I could really give it up and just stare at the catcher. So I watched every ball go all the way out, so I wouldn't really notice if somebody had done a bad flip or something. But as I sit there and envision it right now, 
as a pitcher, if you do that type of bat flip to me, the next time up, I want to knock you out. I want to throw the ball at your head. That's where I'll bleep. <laughs> That's just how it, like, I am irate. And my blood was just getting flowing thinking about it. Like, if I've given up a home run, I'm already so ticked off that I've done that. And then you have the audacity, which it's it's a battle of talk and smack. But I, in my opinion, and this is not acceptable in baseball, this is totally against the unwritten rules. I see the sequence playing out as this. Massive home run, bat flip. If if I'm the pitcher and I'm still in the game, I'm throwing at you. And I think a benches clearing brawl is exciting for baseball in that case. I don't I think do anyone should be suspended. I think bat flip's cool. Hitting the guy's cool. And the brawl's cool. Now, if you throw punches, I guess you're going to get suspended because you threw punches. But I think that adds like a level of excitement and a storyline to baseball. That my, my thing there was that... Uh, Every sport, even sports that used to be considered a gentleman's sport, like I would look at golf as something where it was usually frowned upon to even cheer. And now there's guys fist pumping and Patrick Reed's kind of a D bag. And he, you know, he, uh, he shows up the other players a little bit, but I don't like that. But in baseball, I think it's okay. I, what I was saying is I don't think that, uh, Tim Anderson should have even been suspended for what he said, because in any other league, that's just smack talk. But because the umpire heard, like, where does the umpire have the right to tell on Tim Anderson for smack talking the pitcher who he just demolished a pitch off of? Like, go at it. If the pitcher's going to throw at you, he's going to throw at you. But the ump shouldn't be tattling and then getting suspended because there's a little bit of smack talk going on. Yeah, I think it's different when there's, like, racially char- I get, like, when there's racially charged stuff, I don't think there's any place for that in the game. Like, even if it is, like, I don't know. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I don't think there's any place for any. I'm sure it's much more pervasive in basketball. Like, I, I think we know what we're talking about here with with that. There's certain, you know, there's there's certain words that I, I don't think have any place in sports. Um, so I, I kind of get that. But yeah, I get like the tattling thing. So things are going to be said in the heat of the moment. Even there, there's never a place for it. But I mean, you know, base, base, baseball's got to do what it's got to do in that situation. Yeah, I think I just want to give my take where it's it's not playing it too safe and kind of addressing the issue in that it's a different culture, man. Tim Anderson's coming from a different culture. When you hear the lyrics of songs on the radio and you just know how slang talk is said, I don't believe yeah. I don't believe that it was the type of statement that should have been warranting a suspension. And I think the MLB needs to get with the times and I don't know. I feel like it's almost undiverse to suspend him on yeah. that. But, you know, it could go either way. I just think that it's a totally different era, and yeah, it's it's weird because we, we come from we come from different like I guess backgrounds. Like whereas like I'm 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 you know as an educator like it's just yeah. it's a different mentality for me. Like you know what I mean. Like so I you know, I teach kids about leadership. And so that's not, that's not something I would want my athletes to, that's not a way I would want my athletes to act anyway. Like I, and I tell them all the time, look, look, you're going to be in the heat of the moment. Like I've had issues with my, with, with my athletes where they've lost their cool. And you know, that infuriates me because I don't, I don't want, that's not how I coach. And that's not the principles that I teach. You know, these guys are pros. And so obviously there's a lot more at stake, but, um, you know, we can agree. I, I get what I totally get what you're saying, and I think you understand where I'm coming from yeah. there. And I, think, I almost, uh, I, I almost think just at that level, the like you said, you understand. 
Yeah. The umpire just needs to let it go. Like I, I'm all for teaching kids to be respectful and play the game right, but uh, some players just aren't going to do that when you get to that high level, and I think it's it's stupid to make a scene out of it, I guess. I don't really know exactly if that's what I'm going at, but I just think it's stupid for the umpire to step in there and tattle on what is essentially schoolyard smack talk, which... Which it, it may be and it may not have been. We, we don't know because we weren't we weren't there. Yeah. We just read the transcript and, you know, but but here but to kind of close out my my thoughts on this and what a great podcast this has been. Man, we've gotten to so many things tonight, but I just this I just think baseball needs more excitement. And and I just don't I don't think that and I, and again, what you said about being a pitcher, like it, it definitely made me think about it in a different way. And so I, I totally understand what you're saying as a pitcher. Um, I also, and you're not going to like this, but I also think as a pitcher, like don't give up the home run, big guy. Oh, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Man. You're absolutely <laughs> you know right. I mean? But like, you know, it's just that like when you're playing basketball and you get toasted, you get burnt by a guy. Sure. You want that ball and you're immediately going right at him and you're going to show him that, all right, you got me this time, but I'm going to get you. And that's where as a pitcher, it's it's between do I want to knock him out or do I want to send him down on three pitches and watch him prance back to the bench with a backwards K. And right. And I think the problem is if you're not good enough, you can't strike the guy out. Then you just hit him. (laughs) <laughs> and I think I think where people go wrong, where pitchers go wrong is they throw high or like they throw high and behind. And it's like, dude, if you're going to plunk a guy like what we said before, plunk him in the in the rear end, like plunk him in the back. Like you're throwing high. You're immediately gone. Like if I'm the umpire and you throw high at a guy and you dust him, you're gone. Like there's not even there's no place for that in the game. No place for it at all. And e- you're even running the risk of just throwing anywhere on them, you're running the risk of injury. So really, it's a deadly game either way. Uh, again, I'm for policing, the the sport policing itself. I've I've been that way in hockey, and I'm for that way in best in baseball too. It's just, it's a really interesting topic, and it's it's one that I think we'll revisit again and again. I just thought it was very relevant with with kind of this whole bat flipping thing that's kind of been. I guess getting more and more talk as it's been been more prevalent, um, and I don't think it's a, I think it's a really gray issue, and it's kind of, I'm sure it's not the last time we'll talk about it. No, not at all. And just my closing out my thoughts on that the the throwing at pitchers, and I feel like we'll touch on just throwing at people again because it's such a topic where. It's uh, as a pitcher, I can see how it's so easy to want to throw at the guy's head, but that's where you need to be a major league baseball player uh, with a stable state of mind and understand that you're throwing the ball 95 to 99 miles per hour. No matter how angry you get, you can't just throw a ball at that velocity towards someone's head. Like me, I was touching like 79. Maybe I would hit 80 in my prime, although the local television would not give me the credit that was due. But like if you're throwing that speed, it's still dangerous. But when it's 99 miles per hour, you just throw out his butt or something somewhere where there's some more muscle. <laughs> right, right. So that's right. that's that's my soapbox. I, I agree with what you're saying. Right now. Yeah, man. And I agree with what you're saying too about the, uh, I mean, it's just, just showing some personality. It's not like there's been personality in the game for so long, so it's nothing new. I don't know if it's baseball trying to, I don't know what they're trying to do. I think that some of baseball's 
head honchos or just the important figures in baseball need to speak out. Maybe some of the figures who had some some personality and some swag should speak out and defend the game and say, this is how it needs to be. We need to let these players play. I don't know if like a guy like that comes to mind always is Ken Griffey Jr., how he never doesn't look cool. He kind of just looks like he's got a personality to him. Ryan Howard, he was swagging. He would hit a home run and do his little, mm-hmm. I don't know how you describe it, but he would do like a swag when he hit a home run. And I like that. I like seeing a little bit of personality in baseball. So you're right. Baseball has the potential to be – listen, baseball has – I think baseball is exciting already. I think baseball has the potential to be even more exciting. I don't know why you would want to take it away from the game. Again, I'm not for players getting injured. I'm not for um, – you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not for, you know, benches clearing brawls all the time. I think there's a, I think there's a place for it. I, I think it's pretty cool whenever there's like a little mini argument in baseball, like, like the benches just immediately – you can't even have like a disagreement. Like you see two guys getting like – if there's like a, a meeting at second base, like everybody, like the bullpen starts rushing in. I'm like, right. yes, let's go. Like, let's go. Dude, like Yasiel Puig cool. when he's taking on six guys and he's got one guy hold. Did you see that when he had like one guy holding back dude. his feet? I Joe love Votto, seeing that. Yeah. I love seeing yeah. that. It's just like, go at it. Let him, let him be aggressive and go at it. You know, there's fights in hockey. There's yeah, fights absolutely. in football. There's fights in basketball. Let him have their moment. And- and yeah. stop suspending people for stupid stuff. <laughs> well, let, let it our, go there. That's but... our TED talk for the uni. Because <laughs> our... <laughs> we are totally certified to decide what should be and shouldn't be suspended in sports. And uh, that's, I think that's pretty much it, man. I'm tapped out. Yeah, dude, that is it. I am... Signing off, Justin, as always, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for bringing your brother on and providing us the excitement of that first segment. Uh, I learned a lot, and I'm sure our Flyers faithful are going to really enjoy getting to hear uh, in-depth conversation and excited to hear more about that. Uh, See what we have coming on in the upcoming weeks with that. Hopefully there's some time opening up that we'll be able to uh, put out more consistent content. Uh, Just trying to stay in the loop. Thank you. Hey, man, as always, we're here for you, the fans. This is the fan perspective, so we're happy to do it. Central Quest, place out.